Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. Really excited to introduce our guest today. She is the author of Shaky Ground, What to Do After the Bottom Drops Out, and Not All Who Wander Spiritually Are Lost. She lives outside Grand Rapids. She is a birder, and she is one of my favorite people on Twitter. Hmm. Welcome, Tracy Rhodes. Thank you so much, Courtney. Uh, Excited to be here, not just to do the interview, but also just to spend a little time with you. So yeah, so thankful for Twitter. Thank you for the gift of your time. Yeah, glad to be here. So Tracy, you you truly are one of my favorite presences on Twitter because it, anyone out there who's not on Twitter, what happens on Twitter is people get in a lot of fights. People get in <laughs> fights about candy corn. People get in fights about theology. People get in fights about everything. And Tracy, you are this presence who you're very clear you're a person of faith, you're a Christian, and one of your goals is that Christians would talk to one another, and they'd talk to one another kindly, and they'd find that ecumenicism, different denominations, different traditions have things to teach one another. Why are you the way that you are on Twitter, Tracy? <laughs> well, if, you, if you're into um, studying personalities, a lar- truly a large part of it is the way God designed me. I'm a middle child. I'm an Enneagram 9. I'm a uh, MB, in the NBTI, I'm a INFJ. So there's a lot of built-in like peacemaker in me. So I come by it honest. Um, but I started writing online in 2014. And just in following different conversations, getting to know the online world myself, I just really saw a great need for these people who were rising above it if you will, you know, um, and then as I did that myself in order to learn more and to experience, um, Christianity in a different way than I had, I realized this is the most fulfilling approach, um, human approach, if you will, that we can take. Um, and it just became, uh, a great passion of mine. I, and now, uh, you know, some of what you do on Twitter is lurk, some of us more than others. And whenever I'll see other threads, I'm like, why'd they have to say that to each other? Or why'd they have to word it that way? We just, there's a lot of um, vitriol in us right now. Um, as a society, um, we're, we're still working through what social media and nonstop cell phone usage looks like in our world. And I think that's the cause of a lot of it. And I just try very hard to be and to offer a space where we don't have to do it that way. Yes. 
it really, really shows. And you, you do it in such a winsome way, but you also do it in a way that's invitational. I see people get into conversations in the comments below some of your tweets that are genuine and kind where they're learning from each other. And that is, I think, one of the opportunities of Twitter is you can end up in a conversation within minutes with people who have varying backgrounds and theological training and come from different perspectives. And at our best, we can learn from each other. There's so much potential there if we're not all up in arms. Absolutely. I I have never found a place where I can ask a question and an individual with a PhD in Hebrew and an individual who grew up in Israel and an individual who at on down the line. And it's not, I mean, I am a lay person who is, um, uneducated as far as seminarians. So I don't, I don't want to, um, portray the idea that it's a educational, you know, um, showcase or anything, but like legitimately all of these kinds of people can have conversations. And I, I, it befuddles me that we wouldn't want that. Why would you want to argue about whether or not prime example that always comes up, um, you sprinkle babies or you dedicate babies. Why would we want to argue? Okay. We can argue about that all day long in our own churches for goodness sake. So let's instead learn from one another and understand, oh, that's why you're sprinkling babies. That's why you're dedicating. And at the end of the day, Here's a funny story, very, um, very like current. Yesterday, I said something about how believers should never tire of hearing the gospel because we're forgetful people. And I had a gentleman who pretty regularly um, responds and replies to tweets and stuff. And he said, I don't usually agree with much you say, but I think this one's spot on. (laughs) And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he, you know, he said it respectfully, but he said it honestly. And I think that's a great space to be in. It's a good spot to start. We can work <laughs> with that. It's the difference between a posture of curiosity and learning and a posture of how dare you. And and I think one has potential for learning, even if at the end of the day we still disagree, that we understand where that person is coming from and that they're not a monster and they're not, you know, out to steal our faith away. But their tradition is rooted in different scripture verses, different beliefs, different perspectives. And, and I love, I love that whenever you ask a question on Twitter, I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. This is going to go places. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and I really dive into this with both books. They're, you know, a large part about my journey to this space spiritually. And I I didn't, I wasn't always this way. I don't know that I was necessarily a Bible thumper. Like, I think I had a little bit of room for critical thinking and um, I certainly wasn't rude, but I thought it was a whole lot more black and white than I do now. There were certain, like, I, you know, 20 years ago, well, maybe 30, 30 years ago, I would have told you yeah, we do need to dedicate our babies. Like baptism is for believers. And, you know, so, and now I'm like, yeah, which point do you want me to argue? <laughs> you know, so, um, so a much different space. And I'll be honest, taking those first few steps early on, you know, reading a book that is so entirely out of my 
Christian context felt scary. Um, and, and I, <clears throat> along with many, I, I call myself a parallel evangelical. I don't know how fully I fall into that category, but um, along with many evangelicals, I think I did feel like if I, if I tried to understand a perspective that was different than mine, I might lose my faith. I might um, fall out of the graces of Christianity, if you will. It it hardly makes sense to me now, but I was there, certainly, um, in my younger years. I heard an interview recently with Amy Peeler, who's a, she's a Wheaton College professor. She's an Episcopal priest. And she said, you know, my liberal arts education taught me that I don't have to be afraid and it doesn't have to be a posture of defensiveness. And I think so many of us who were raised in the evangelical church were raised with this posture of protect yourself at all costs. Mm -hmm. If you entertain any other ideas, that's the first step in the slippery slope where you end up selling your body on a street corner, right? Like it was a very dire, very dire prediction. And I think it taught us this posture of fear toward the world, um, toward science, toward other disciplines that have things to teach us. My, my husband's a PhD in systematic theology, and he was on a rant last night about, you know, the, the, the law of aerodynamics is just true. Like we can't find it in the Bible, but you want your pilot to believe in it. And, And that we don't have to be afraid that we can learn from each other, that we can learn from the world, that God is not threatened by new ideas, and that scripture is written in a particular way for a particular reason. It's not a history or a science book. It it contains history. It contains some science. Um, But how did you recover kind of that posture of curiosity and openness toward the world rather than defensiveness? What was that journey for you? It may be kind of a synonym of what you're describing, but to a large part, I think developing a critical thinking skill was a large part of it. Like you said, um, because I was only reading evangelical work, I was just reading people I agreed with, you know, to where now when I can pick up um, any, and what a really beautiful bridge for this um, is Madeline Lingle. Um, I've read her nonfiction work and She's such a, she was such a beautiful question asker. And again, that points to this critical thinking skills that I found we by and large don't have in almost any sector of our, you know, I mean, you can look at something like food and the diet culture rather than exploring, why do I feel the need to eat five slices of pizza when I eat pizza? We're just like, don't eat pizza, use cauliflower pizza, you you know. And of course, that is a very generalization. Um, But uh, I also have a teenage daughter who gets to walk this crazy path that her mom is on spiritually with me. And I am trying so hard to pour into her that idea of critical thinking and um, be be cautious when you try that with a teenager <laughs> because they're already doing some critical thinking on their own. But I want her to um, clearly see, gosh, we. Uh, one of the things that will pretty quickly shut me down on Twitter, I'll be more frank than I will with hardly anything else, is if someone wants to throw a blanket statement over something. 
if they say, oh, all Southern Baptists are Republicans, you're going to get some fire from me because I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's true. Um, it, it shows a great lack of um, disregard for an entire group um, and shows that at least in that area, you're not using your critical thinking skills because it's always more complex than that. Um, how did I, how did I, I think the question you phrased was how do I, how did I get into it or how did I overcome? I just had to face that fear. Um, and once I faced that fear, I realized how deep it was taking my faith. And I realized how much I had to learn that I had never learned before and I didn't turn back. Mm. It was worth it to me to, and I don't feel, I still feel it every now and then. It doesn't, I don't know that um, our upbringing ever completely goes away, but I don't feel that fear nearly like I did at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. It shows in your books, it shows in your writing that there is this posture of of curiosity and openness toward the world and not an openness that means we can just believe anything and it doesn't matter. And, you know, it's just chaos and anarchy. It's it's this openness of tell me more about that. I want to learn more about that. I'm curious about that. And and you turn that curiosity inward as well mm-hmm. about your own presuppositions, about your own background, about how this shapes you, because I do think it's really hard. You know, we're the goldfish swimming in the, in the goldfish bowl. We don't realize we're in the water because we've never been out of the water. We, we, it's very hard to analyze our own presuppositions until we are faced with a question from someone who grew up very differently or had very different training or comes from a very different church background and, um, or non-church background. And so I appreciate that you turn that lens outward toward the world, but also toward yourself. Um, what am I learning about myself in this journey? And you give us permission to do the same. Both of your books are not these rigid, this is what you should believe, this is what you should do. It's this journey is not always linear. <laughs> there are yes. ups, there are downs, you double back. Um, tell me about the permission that you seek to give your readers in your books. Permission's a great word. Um, I, I visit churches pretty regularly, not as much as I did in the beginning, because I've experienced a number of different um, church traditions now. But um, maybe two months ago, I went to a different Reformed church in Grand Rapids. I'm also attending a Reformed church, but this was a different one. Um, Had a female pastor and was much more liturgically focused than um, my contemporary church. And I had um, two friends from Twitter that I wanted to meet there. So I um, went and beautiful, beautiful service, loved the experience. And afterwards, I talked with Kristen Dumez, um, who is also active on Twitter, um, a historian who's written um, Jesus, Jesus and John Wayne, right? Isn't that the name of her book? Um, and then I know she has a second one coming out I can't wait for because it's the women's side of the evangelical movement. And so I'm super excited to read it. But anyway, um, we were talking afterwards and dissecting Twitter, um, being more honest than we maybe can be online. And one of the things I told her that, that I'm realizing, you, you know, when I first started writing, when I first started on Twitter, Imposter syndrome is real. Um, and like I say, I, I am um, 
I'm book smart, but largely uneducated um, as far as um, train Christian training goes, religious training, schooling. And so sometimes you're like, well, who am I to, you know, and so what I've tried to do and what I communicated to Kristen that day, that's very different from what she offers because she is highly educated and she does teach at Calvin, um, you know, and your husband with a PhD, a completely different lens, if you will, I can offer that permission and I can offer stumbling because you're going to, um, when, if I, especially when I visit Orthodox church churches, it is wholly new to me. Um, a tradition I did not know about till I was probably about 32. Um, and so when I go to visit, I always email the priest ahead Mm. of time and I say, you know, I'm coming and I'm so looking forward to it, but could you give me any pointers on not offending, um, the church people who I'm going to be attending with, um, and oftentimes they'll say, oh, I'll, when when you get there, introduce yourself and I'll um, introduce you then to another woman or, you know, it's um, it's always so well received. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's what I find a lot of times um, we'll check out a book at a library or we might buy the Book of Common Prayer and set it on a bookshelf. But I try to be that my editor said it best. I try to be that person who is just one step ahead of you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and go to mass first and I'll stumble through, you know, all of the things that they have memorized that none of us know. Um, and then I'll come back and tell you about it and you'll realize, mm-hmm. Oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. Plus many Catholic churches that I go to now will either put all the prayer on a screen or they'll have it, um, in like a, uh, it's not called a hymnal. Um, that's, that's my free, that's my wording, but in a, in a book that has the order of service and the music, um, I, I think by and large, at least in my experience, those churches are trying to be more accommodating to people who aren't the regulars, who aren't mm-hmm. um, as familiar with how the service will go as other people might be. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I'm willing to look like a fool so that other people will give things a try. <laughs> it's just one of many services you provide. <laughs> I so appreciate that. And I, I think it's really important to note that we we need lay people doing this work because I, I hear from people all the time, well, I didn't go to seminary or I don't have a PhD or I don't have the training. So, you know, they, they kind of outsource their, their own spiritual life to the professionals, but that's mm. not how it works. And I think there are things you can learn as a layperson that are harder to learn when you're higher up in the echelons of education, because you can get blinded by your own, by your own learning, by your own knowledge. And so you're, you're, just the way you model, I'm going after this knowledge and I can do this through my own experience, through my own reading, through my own research, through the questions that I ask and the ways that I learn on social media, because that avenue is open to all of us. We can't all pick up and go to seminary. We can't all get a PhD. I thought I would get a PhD Mm -hmm. and then I saw my husband do a PhD and I'm like, I am not built for that. That looks miserable. No, (laughs) thank you. I am stopping here. Um, But that avenue is open to all of us. We can all read the church mothers and fathers. We can all get into conversations on social media where we say, okay, 
Catholic mass, please explain. Those of you who are Catholic, tell me why you go, what you learn, what do you get out of it? Do you actually worship Mary? Spoiler alert, they do not. <laughs> right? There are there are ways to to talk through this and our own assumptions that we've made, the things we've been taught that may not be true. Ask someone who actually practices that particular faith rather than making the assumptions that maybe we were raised with. And you do such a good job of, of modeling that for all of us. Thank you. Thanks. Um, what's, inter- what's interesting to me is you think you're going after, like, probably early on, I thought, well, I'm just going after this for knowledge, right? I'm just going after this for more of Jesus. But then you see all of these underlying things. And if we're, in fact, entering into a post-Christian world, which I hear a lot, then I almost think it's vital that we come together more as Christians. Hmm. Like we don't have the liberty of fighting anymore when our children are leaving that, you know, like this is a concept that I'm still, you know, you know, as a writer, Courtney book three, four, and five are always being written in your head well before they're being put down, um, on the computer, on the page. And that's what I'm, um, that's what I've got my thumb on right now. This idea that not only is it fun and life-giving to explore our church traditions and our various practices and church history, like I love it, but also it's necessary for reasons. And that's what I, I, I'm still thinking through. That's still very fresh in my mind, but, um, yeah, vital comes to mind. Um, there, there's a reason we need to do that. Not just because it's fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that's really true that if, if we're rowing in the same direction, we're rowing in the same direction and that may look different. And some of us wear robes and some of us have high liturgy and some of us, you know, ordain women and some of us don't. And, and to be able to say, are we, are we, are we headed toward Jesus? And if so, we're on the same team and we want the same things. And that's to, you know, be at work on behalf of the kingdom of God and these sowing these seeds and caring for our communities. And, and I think the more we can focus on those main things, I have conversations all the time. I'm here in Orange County, California. It's, it's heavily churched, um, but there aren't many female pastors. And so I get into conversations all the time where, you know, people are kind of uncomfortable with who I am and what I do. And, and, I understand that. I grew up in a tradition that doesn't ordain women. And, but the more I can, you know, we're, we're, we're rowing in the same direction. And my goal is not to convince you or your children that women should be pastors. My goal is to point to Jesus. And if, if you need me to do that from the other side of the room or from a different building, that's fine with me. Um, I believe very deeply that women should be pastors or I wouldn't be doing what I do with my life, but that's not my first order issue. My goal is not to convince you that I'm right. My goal is to point to Jesus. So good. So good. Yeah. Some days it's easier than others. When people assume I'm the receptionist, I get cranky. (laughs) Part of my work is trying hard not to use labels like egalitarian and complementarian. Um, Say what those are for folks who are, yes, are uninitiated. Yes. So, well, if I get them right, egalitarian basically makes the argument that men and women are created equal. And so we should have equal um, equality in marriage. We should have equality in um, 
gender roles really across the board. And complementarian believes that there is a created order to things and there are specific scriptures that point to man being the head of things, including the church, including um, the pastoral roles, including um, husband over wife in a marriage. And those are fun conversations on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Those are some of my favorites. Yes. Sometimes I'm like, I need to log off. Yes. (laughs) I need to go for a walk. But so much of what you said, Courtney, um, I think you don't, you, we don't all have to be in the middle like me. And there's certainly people that argue by me being in the middle, I'm also not choosing sides. So again, conversation and complexities to all of it, but there are complementarian Christians and there are complementarian or egalitarian Christians and Christians should come first in that labeling. Um, and that's a lot of the work I do. I think, Mm. um, my, locally in my church, um, I have been nominated as an elder regularly. I have, he, my pastor calls him my posse. He goes, your posse nominated you again for elder. (laughs) Um, and and biblically I do, um, fall into a lot of the categories of the elder role in a church have never felt called to pastor. So have not pursued that call. Um, but my pastor and, Overall leadership at my church are complementarian. They do not, um, our denomination ordains women, our local church does not, and they have, um, they're at liberty to do that or not. And we go to church together and we have terrific conversations. And if I'm invited to preach somewhere at a Methodist church, that's often where it is. (laughs) I do, I go. Um, So Trying to model, and I hope, I know there are many, many lay people doing this, trying to model that idea of I'm going to a church where we clearly know things we don't agree on, Mm. and we're still doing church together, and we're still serving our community, and yeah, pointing to Jesus. It's an excellent point. That is a beautiful story. I did Mm -hmm. not know that. I don't talk about it much. (laughs) Well, we'll just put it on the internet so everyone can hear. We'll talk about Um, it now. (laughs) But I think, I mean, especially on Twitter, the impulse is, you know, Mm -hmm. if your church doesn't agree with you on X, Y, and Z, burn it to the ground. Never darken the door ever again. And that's, that's just not how human relationships should work. In my opinion, that's, that's, you know, we're all complex. I don't agree with Daryl on everything and we've been married 16 years and love each other very much. I don't agree with John Calvin on everything and I'm a Presbyterian. So we, (laughs) but to be able to bear with one another in love. And sometimes those differences are so great. We have to say, you know, I, I love you so much. I need to worship at this other church, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm going with love and I'm going with care and blessings on your journey. You know, we have those conversations at our church where people will say, you know, I don't agree with where the denomination is on X, Y, and Z. And I love you, but I can't be here anymore. And we always say, you know, blessings on your journey. And we're so glad you're going to church. It's, you know, if you're going to Saddleback on the other side of town, or you're going to the Catholic church, or you're going wherever you're going, that you're, that you're still connected to the great tradition and the body of Christ. And those are painful, but important conversations. And I love that you're modeling a more egalitarian way of being in a complementarian space because that's a complicated and beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it, the day-to-day carrying out of that is where 
grace is shown, I think. Mm. Because when those nominations roll in each year, I could be snarky. Like when my daughter um, was, what do they call it in the Reformed tradition? Profession of faith. When she made her profession of faith, so she's already been baptized. So it's kind of like um, confirmation or something like that. When she did that, she became a member of our Mm -hmm. church. And her first words to me were, I'm going to nominate you as elder now. So she, again, our children watch these journeys, right? And I told her, you're, you know, you have the freedom to vote to nominate however you like until we found out she has to be 18. (laughs) So there's rules on top of, you know, so that that's church um, structure, if you will. But so at 18, we'll see what she decides. (laughs) At 18, your posse will grow by one. Yes. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) And I, I, I love the, I love that your daughter's nominating you. I love that there's hope for, you know, you and your church disagree on this issue and there's hope for change and transformation. But even without that change and transformation, there's still connectedness. There's self-differentiation while staying connected, which is, I think, one of the hardest things to do in life and in in ministry. And you'll see on Twitter, you know, if your family voted different than you, cut them off. If your family, you know, and, and like, that's not it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus sitting around a dinner table with Peter who spouted off about something yesterday and needed to be talked to and John and all of their differences and complexities. And we, we can't continue to grow and learn if all we do is disconnect from one another. Mm-hmm. I, I find it really beautiful. I've heard a few examples um, on social media, also in real life of churches who are staying together and forcing themselves to have super hard conversations and looking at history. And I admire that so much because society is not teaching us that. That is not, that is a biblical model that they are saying we're going to be countercultural in this way. And I'm on the school board locally And so I know what those conversations can be like. They're hard. And and again, I'm a peacemaker. (laughs) So everything in me is like, run, people aren't getting along. And I think their voice is a little too loud. They're probably mad at me. You know, I mean, all the normal things go through my mind. But gosh, it's so important. And -hmm. what a Christ-like model we can show. Um, I love that you brought up the disciples because I grew up thinking, And I say thinking, but really I hadn't given it any thought is what I mean. So I grew up thinking 12 men, all exactly the same, probably Baptist. Um, You know, (laughs) they would go fishing together and then have a fish fry. And, you know, Peter's uh, mother-in-law would probably bring, you know, side dishes. You know, just all of these happy, happy. It wasn't like they were politically different and Judas was always doing whatever Judas was doing. And it was, it was messy. It's always, always been messy. And gosh, that was revolutionary um, Mm. to me that, you know, just that idea of, Oh, they probably weren't getting along on everything either. And to, you know, it, it continues, pick whatever point in history you would like to look at. And you'll see that we, we've always been messy people trying to come together in the name of Christ. 
There have been no glory days short of <laughs> the glory we look forward to. Yes, that's our hope. Our hope. Yeah. Yes. So Tracy, I want to turn us in the birding direction. Yes. How does this same curiosity and openness that you practice with your with your faith and with your exploration of different denominations and Christian traditions, how does this curiosity influence your life of birding? Tell me about Tracy the birder. Yeah. There's a couple memes going around right now. I won't remember the exact wording, but it says something like, I was just going along about my business. And one day I woke up and discovered I loved watching birds. You know, I mean, it's like this middle age rite of passage, if, um, if you will. And my husband and I have stepped fully into it. We, uh, we have feeders um, to out two different windows. We have a bird, a bluebird house out another window. Um, and really it's a large part of marking our seasons. Um, we're in Michigan, as you mentioned. And so we have full fledged, um, four seasons. And so we know what birds are going to come and go during those. Um, I, what I, I think my favorite thing about birding is that I can, my mind can rest a little bit. My mind doesn't rest a whole lot. (laughs) Always learning, always um, thinking, you know, questions and, uh, again, exercising that critical thinking muscle. Um, And and with birding, there's some reliability to that. I I could, you could probably make a pretty beautiful essay, strong argument for it feeling like the liturgical seasons Mm-hmm. We need those kind of rhythms in our life. Um, right now, we, like I say, here we are, whatever, March, middle of March. And we've had huge amounts of snow, like snow day type snow in the last two weeks. And I'm like, no, no, middle of March. But you look out, we have a tree that's to the left um, of our primary feeder. It's the one that has suet and um, stick is the biggest And this tree will house as many as 30 male and female cardinals against Mm. the snow falling. Just really beautiful. So hard to capture. Oh, I wanted to, um, I don't know if she'll listen or not, but I'm friends with a girl on Twitter named Kelly Wolf. And you may know Kelly as well, but uh, somehow, or I don't even remember how, where it went back to, but somehow or another, I discovered that Kelly's nephew loves birding and he's like six, he may be four. He's super young and he loves it. And he knows all these birds and his mom buys him all these books so he can learn the different kinds of birds. And so I've tried really hard to capture that tree to send to him. Um, and the first time I sent it to him and said, Kelly, you know, be sure you show your nephew this. She recorded what he said. This, this is the fun of social media. It can be so fun. Um, and on the recording, he said, that's ridiculous, KK. And we say that in our house all the time. Anytime something happens that's, you know, a little wonky or whatever, we're like, that's ridiculous, KK. Um, so, yeah, birds have brought me um, stillness of mind. They bring me so much joy. Uh, another fun story, The I was at Bible study one evening. It's been probably two or three years ago. And I was at Bible study on a Wednesday night. And I get a text from my husband, well, probably more than one, probably a five or six texts from my husband. I saw an Oriole. We don't have any grape jelly. And I was like, oh, no, we need grape jelly. So the, 
our church is right by a Dollar General. And so I go over to Dollar General right after Bible study and they're out. Everyone else saw the grape jelly or the Oreos. And so they're buying all the grape jelly. And so I ended up going to a local gas station and paying like three times the price of what I should for a jar of grape jelly. So that our, because, you know, if you don't, if you don't have the grape jelly out soon, the route will be totally changed and you might not get nearly as many Oreos as you would. So it's super important to have the grape jelly at the right time. (laughs) Pro tip. Yes. Yes. No, it's been fun. I love your Midwestern birds. Those are the birds I grew up with. And mm-hmm. we have such different birds out here. We have yeah. some of the same, but by and large, they're they're very, very different. And I'm, I miss those cardinals. Those are your favorite, aren't they? They are. They are. Yeah. Especially because of the snow. And honestly, as far as female birds go, I think the cardinal is one of the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the females don't get nearly the color. God has some explaining to do on that. And that, I mean, I guess scientifically it makes sense, but anyway... Um, yeah, female cardinal is really beautiful. My daughter is four and she's in a princess phase, which baffles me because I grew up playing ice hockey. (laughs) I was a tomboy and she is like the minute she's home from preschool, she's in her Elsa dress or her Rapunzel dress. And, and we saw a, a male peacock when we were, we were at a local nature preserve and she just would not accept that that was the boy. She was like, absolutely not. She's like, that, that bird is a princess. That bird is a girl. Oh, it makes so much sense. I love that. I love that. And I, she's, I'm also a fan of um, any pictures you share of her on social media too. Yeah. She is personality for days. She's, she's a hoot, man. She is a lot of fun. My husband always says, you know, were you like this? He only had brothers. I only had sisters. So he's always like, were you like this as a kid? I'm like, no, no, no one was like this. She has, she is her own thing. Good for her. She's her own species of human. Good for her. Um, Yeah. But I love the, I, I, and I miss the seasons as well. I miss looking forward to, we get different birds that migrate through and everything, but we essentially have a little colder in the winter and kind of on fire in September and October. And the, I miss that that longing of, okay, it's going to warm up and then there will be blueberries and then there will be leaves. And there is something really, it does mirror the liturgical seasons in a way. When we hit Lent in Orange County and everything is blooming, I'm like, stop it. That is not appropriate. (laughs) This is not Lent feeling at all. (laughs) Easter is not for six weeks now. Everyone settle down. Um, so funny. Well, tell me a little bit about um, your spiritual practices because you write about this in the book mm-hmm. and, and both books, actually. You write about spiritual practices and how they tether you to hope because this podcast is all birds and hope. Mm-hmm. How do spiritual practices connect you with hope and what are some of your favorite spiritual practices? I I chuckle a little bit that, again, not not being educated, not growing up in a liturgical home or church but I'm so drawn to them. Um, and I think that word rhythm is very tied to it. Um, I, I love the constant pointers to hope that you receive when you're, um, practicing the liturgical calendar. I row in shaky ground and, um, shaky ground came probably, probably five to seven years after I had been introduced to a lot of these um, spiritual practices. And by that, I mean um, praying formal prayers. That's been huge. Um, The idea of um, contemplative prayer, uh, of just sitting in contemplation rather than 
spontaneous prayers, you know, God, please help my, my so-and-so, you know, um, the, um, freelance prayers, I guess I'll say that, um, evangelicals use. And so I, I'd been practicing them long enough to kind of step back in that book and say, okay, how are they helping me? And the beauty of what I do is how did the Quakers teach me? about mm. silence and how did the Orthodox teach me about communion, etc. And so I'm able to pull from this big pool of um, church tradition resources. And what I found is there's a grounding to them. Um, there's a there's something to be said for the idea of reading something or praying something out loud long enough that you have it memorized that then gets pulled out whenever um, you might not have the words to say. Um, I love the thread that it creates between me and Christians around the world Christians who might be praying at the exact same time as me, Christians through the ages who have been praying those same prayers. There's a um, familial connection that I did not have um, when I was uh, strictly evangelical. And some of my favorites, um, I love the prayer rope that the Orthodox, uh, I also love the Jesus prayer that goes along um, with the Orthodox prayer rope. Touch has become really meaningful to me in my spiritual practices. Um, again, because it's something that was so, so new to me. It is, but it isn't. Um, I, I think in Shaky Ground, I tell the story of when my, my dad passed away in 2006, suddenly, and we were living in Michigan at the time. And so um, late at night, we planned and packed for a trip home to Missouri. And it's it's about nine hours. Um, well, no, it's further because we were on the Detroit side. That's what you say in Michigan, the Detroit side of Michigan. Um, and so we were probably about 11 hours from my hometown and so we, it was so late that we drove to my parent, my in-laws first and stayed there and then made the rest of the trip home. And whenever I got to my father-in-law's house, I realized I had not packed my Bible in the suddenness. And I needed to hold that Bible so badly. And I um, needed to read the Psalms. I mean, I'm, uh, it was almost like uh, there was a subconscious action going on that was telling me that this is how you're going to begin your grief journey and you have to have these things in place. And so I asked him if I could use um, his Bible and holding it. I could not tell you by any means what Psalm I read, but I know I read the Psalms. Um, and so then years later, when I start learning about these spiritual practices and, you know, my, my daughter broke her arm um, when she was like in fourth grade and we're driving to the emergency room, and I think, is this the person I have my prayer rope in? I, you know, so you, and you're like, oh, that's kind of like when I needed to hold the Bible. And every evangelical would be fine with you holding the Bible <laughs> or a hymn book, you know. So 
um, that's, that's what, uh, exploring these spiritual practices has taught me too. Oftentimes we're doing a very similar thing. We just are giving ourselves permission to maybe use something different or do it a little differently than what another church mm-hmm. tradition is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, communion is, well, both. I, I, I'm a two sacrament kind of girl, could probably make some argument for the others, but um, both sacraments that Protestants typically um, affirm are communion and baptism. And those have become completely spiritual practices to me, mm-hmm. not just ones that I do myself, but um, the viewing of it. I just went to Mass towards the beginning of Lent. I think it was the first Sunday of Lent. Um, a friend locally was wanting to go. I find that a lot of people do not want to go alone, won't go alone. Um, so mm. I go with people. And so I, we went to a, um, a mass and they were going to baptize a child after the mass was complete. And, oh, it just grips me to see, um, the liturgy that they speak over the child and then to speak to the, um, the, the God, mother and godfather who have been chosen it all you know i just had a meeting with my pastor yesterday and he mentioned that idea of children needing times in their life that are like milestones he called them mm-hmm. stakes in the ground that's where i put my mm-hmm. you know, my stake in the ground i'm a christian i'm growing up a christian and baptism and communion certainly point, however you do it, however you believe it should be done, certainly point to those times of stakes in the ground. And they've just become deeply meaningful to me. Mm. I think about <clears throat> the global church a lot when I'm standing in front of the communion table and officiating. Mm-hmm. And it's this golden thread that connects us with the church in Uganda and the church in India and the church in South America and the church in Alaska. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if I think too deeply about it in that moment, I get choked up and I, I can't get choked up. I have yeah. a job to do. Um, <laughs> can't talk. But that reminder, <laughs> right. That I, I think, you know, growing up evangelical, I, I learned the Bible very, very well. And I learned a great reverence for the Bible, but we didn't do much with the Christian tradition. Like there was no one between the apostle Paul and Billy Graham. There was no one. And so part of my adult faith has been learning from St. Augustine and learning from Thomas Aquinas and learning from, you know, even more, more modern saints, people like Denise Levertov and, and Wendell Berry and, and uh, Flannery O'Connor, that the, there have been wise people in the church since the church was founded and yeah. every year in between now and then. And yeah. so when we connect to some of these traditions that that rose up in places very different than where I live in Orange County, California. You know, what can we learn from the Coptic church? What can we learn mm-hmm. from the the Catholic church in Mexico? What can we learn from, from all of these different Christians who in a particular context found a way to be faithful? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just gives me so much hope and encouragement that it doesn't all rest on my shoulders and my personal piety and my personal holiness. Not that those things aren't important, but that we're, we're weaving together these threads of a much larger tapestry. And what a beautiful thing. And you tell that story in so many different ways, and you tell it so well. I love that Shaky Ground spends a good bit of time in the Psalms, recovering mm. this ancient prayer book of the Bible. Um, 
that we've mm-hmm. kind of stepped away from, I think, especially in the evangelical church, because Psalms are weird and messy and we don't like them and they don't really teach doctrine. They teach that you can bring your messy self to God and we're not totally okay with that all the time. Yeah. They're very um, touchy feely. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. They don't say do X and you will be blessed. They Mm -hmm. say, God, I'm really mad at you. And we're like, Ooh, is that okay? Yeah. But again, going back to the story of um, the night my dad passed away, I was not going to read Leviticus. Right. (laughs) But I wasn't going to read Romans either. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, and I'll be honest uh, again, Courtney, you know, we, we write and we um, tweet so much out of our, where we are personally. Um, I'm still exploring what it is like to bring all of, to even know what my emotions are Mm. that I'm bringing to God, (laughs) if that makes sense, because I still hesitate to be angry. Mm. I still hesitate to, um, be disappointed. Uh, Mm. those weren't things you're, you know, there, there's that song um, that we're singing at church right now, um, and all your fears and doubts, they can come to, is mm. what the line is. Um, and then it says, because they won't stay long when I'm here with you. And I don't think I believe that part. <laughs> I think sometimes we travel with those fears and doubts. Um, but I, I love that idea, um, that mm. initial concept of... I, I do get to feel those things. And David and uh, the other psalmists surely did. Mm-hmm. But still, be a, I'm a person of tremendous hope. I love, it, it's kind of popular right now. I've read two or three books probably in the last year on it. I believe one of yours is kind of about it too. Um, that Christians get to be full of joy. Yes. Um, and that doesn't mean ignore the fires going on around us. Um, it, it doesn't mean we don't pray fervently and do what we can to help Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I, I mean, if anything, it should spur us to action. Um, but that, that hope and that joy, they come out of these spiritual disciplines. They come out of realizing, look, church history had some hard times too. You know, there, there was, um, I, I just, I, I've been thinking in my mind lately, the Bible verse over and over in this world, you will have trouble. And boy, there's about 87 different synonyms you could use for that word trouble, you know, Mm. Um, and we don't escape it as Christians. But again, we rise above it, if you will. We we claim joy. We claim hope. Um, We get to sit with the birds and have um, our mind at rest because Jesus commanded us to do that too. Um, So yeah, I just, I find Christianity, um, the more I learn about it, it, the more I grow in my faith, it it can be so practical, you Mm. know, like what, what it has to offer us, how it can ground us um, in a shaky world. Uh, And that's, that's a lot of what I try to point to, what I try to um, create, mm. rather than just the, you know, um, we just don't get very far when we belittle one another and yell at one another and um, say, well, I'm not going to do social media at all if it's going to be that way. <laughs> and again, Holy Spirit guided. If you, you know, like you said, sometimes I need to take a break. 
Absolutely. Um, and there are tweets that every, not very often, but every now and then I'll just take them down. <laughs> I'm like, nope, this is not going in the direction that I need to go in right now. So yeah, I mean, you know, um, the spirit of God lives in us. And, and so if we're listening, uh, it can be a very guided process. Hmm. And fear and rage aren't <laughs> our strongest motivators. They do move people and they move dollars, which is why we see a lot of, you know, the news cycle based on fear and based on anger. But the deepest motivator, what I learned in, in researching that book on joy, the the book it's called Happy Now, um, was that joy. Joy is the biggest motivator. Yeah. Joy is is our strongest fuel. And that people who are deeply in touch with joy are almost always people who are deeply in touch with suffering. You cannot just go to joy or that joy is anemic and it doesn't last. And more and more, I, I, I learned that you, you've got to go down to go up and that God meets us in, in both places. That's good. Um, it was a harder book to write than I expected. I was like, write a book about happiness. It'll be fun. No, no, no. <laughs> the results were great, but I, there was some, there was some, some soul work. Yeah. We always learn more as the, as the writer and as a teacher, right? Yeah. We don't know what we're in for yeah. when we sit down and I do love that. I more. love that concept though. Um kind of kind of meets me where I am. You we have to earn earn joy in a way. And I certainly don't mean that earn salvation. No one hear that <laughs> or will really upset the the hornet's nest. Get some letters. Um, yeah, no, but um like you said, if it's not going to be a superficial joy, if it's not just going to be a happy clappy joy then yeah, it's earned, and it's earned in all kinds of ways. It's earned in experience. It's earned in years of life. It's earned in time put in with spiritual practices and the study of scripture, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's a concept that I'll keep thinking about. Hmm. Well, Tracy, thank you <laughs> for the gift of your time, for the gift of your books. Everybody check out Shaky Ground. Check out Not all who wander spiritually are lost. Hard to a say. Little, little Tolkien <laughs> reference in there, which I appreciate. Um, and go find Tracy on social media. She's at Traces of Faith. I will link to all of those things in the show notes. Um, but whether you're a person of faith or not, she is a great person to be in conversation with because she's not going to smack you down, <laughs> and she's going to foster some some wonderful conversations about why we are the way we are and what we believe about God and where we might be headed together. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I knew I'd enjoy it and I did. <laughs> Happy Cardinals, Tracy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> then we end with jazz hands. Yay. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Yes, it does.